0: You're listening to Transform Your Profits, the podcast for accountants who want to build a more profitable, successful, and impactful accounting firm. Your host is Reza Huda, a practice owner, mentor, and coach to accounting firm owners.
1: Hello there, welcome to today's podcast and I am very pleased to have with me today, Carl Reeder, who I will be interviewing. And Carl will be talking about how to build an accounting firm that can run without you. Carl is probably someone who needs no introduction in the accounting space. He's been around it a while and has achieved some tremendous successes, not just with his accounting firm, but his own personal brand and the value that he gives to business owners at large. Really enjoy this session with Carl. We actually went quite a bit over time. so. This podcast is a little bit longer than the previous ones, but it's well worth it. Some lots of gems that Carl has shared. And no doubt, if you want to further connect with Carl, then do so. He is quite uh, ubiquitous on social media, so check him out. Carl has uh, lots to share and uh, someone that we can learn a lot from. So without further ado, let's get straight into it, and I'll see you on the other side. Just To kick us off with Carl, give us a, a brief introduction about yourself and we'll take it from there. So uh, essentially your your accounting journey, when you first started your your accounting firm.
0: Sure. Well, first of all, um, thank you so much for inviting me to this. And um, you mentioned that I don't need introduction, but I'm absolutely sure that I do. Um, And that's mainly because I enjoy talking about myself quite bluntly. So I'm creating the opportunity for an introduction. But thank you so much for letting me um, speak to the group. And I really do hope that In some way, this helps um, each and every member, even if they can just take one nugget of advice from it. So um, as I said, so I'm Carl. My accounting journey was quite um, accidental, I think, would be the way that I would sum it up. So I took a very strange route into accountancy. I left school at the age of 15 and started a YTS in hairdressing. So it didn't go too well. Um, I I did that at the point that I got national insurance number. So I remember vividly getting my national insurance card back in the day that you get the card in the post. Mm. And I hated school, um, absolutely hated everything about it. I hated the structure. I hated the fact that like to sit down and be quiet. I hated the fact that I like to do homework. I hated the fact that it was a boys school. Yeah, all of this stuff I didn't enjoy. So I went out and tried to create my own way in the world. And that lasted six weeks. So I went back to school just to do my GCSEs about three, four months later, um, which was great fun because I was able to go without a uniform while everyone else was in uniform and so on. Um, but then I was at the point where, you know, I had to work out what to do with my life. And yeah, if you can imagine at that point I was 16, I had moved out with my girlfriend at that point, she'd become pregnant. And um, I told you it wasn't the usual route into accountancy, didn't I? I was working two hours a week at a supermarket, stacking shelves in the dairy department. So I had to get a proper job and had to do something to um, be able to um, you know, pay the bills. I couldn't keep going on selling stuff at cash converters and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, had to do something to, um, you know, pay the bills keep myself busy as well, but there was no real intention of doing anything to further myself, it was just about getting a job. So I applied for the first three jobs that I saw in the newspaper, which one of them was in the army, and two of them were at accounting firms, got turned away from the army for being um, underweight at the time, believe it or not. But I got offered the two jobs at accountancy firms. And to put that into context, I had no idea what an accountant was. I had no idea what accountancy was. I, um, before my first interview, went to the library in Leon C. And actually read a careers book to find out what an accountant does and regurgitated it during the first interview. So I was very fortunate to get into accountancy, first of all, by an unconventional route. And secondly, to get into accountancy at a time when 16-year-olds and certainly um, those without A-levels were accepted into the profession uh, because obviously a fair few years before you had to go through articles and that process and certainly just a couple of years afterwards most employers upped their minimum requirement to A-levels so I was in a very fortunate time banding but I was able to get in do the AAT and then go from there so I joined a firm in Essex uh, it's a fantastic firm very small firm but learned a lot and um, probably the one thing that I learned more than anything was that I didn't enjoy accountancy <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, and that was a really defining moment when I realized maybe one or two years in but I wasn't very good at it I didn't particularly enjoy it and but there was actually some parts of the role that I really enjoyed which was going out meeting people um, at that time training them on sage sterling so taking their big red accounting cash books converting it into computerized records i joined dnt as a staffer in 2002 um that at that point there was about eight of us i believe i was gifted a bunch of clients but nobody else enjoyed working with so this was martial arts schools there's about 25 of them and they were based all over the uk and i just went out and met them and we put online accounting in place for them because They were based in far-flung locations, furthest away was Inverness, we had Belfast, we had Cornwall and we had, we we literally had all four corners. Um, We put online accounting in place purely to save disks getting broken in the post rather than any of the current talk about um, connecting data and all of that stuff. That was the furthest thing from our mind. Um, I built that portfolio up to about 250 martial arts schools in the UK, which would probably be 75% of the market. Um, Mm. And along that way, learned about niching a practice. One of those schools decided that they wanted to franchise. So I went to a franchise expo with them back in 2004, I think it was, Um, just kept turning up to these franchising events, took on our first major name franchise in 2007. Uh, which was Stagecoach Theatre Arts, who are still clients of ours today. Um, realized that we'd struck gold along that way with what we could offer in that world and built it to the point we are now, where we've got about 3,000 our clients. Um, we're I- embedded in most franchise systems as the network accountant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Alongside that, there's been a personal journey as well. So that's the business story, so to speak. Um, there's been a personal journey as well. It was about 2004 where my second employer, d realized that I wasn't really cut out for accountancy either. So it was noticed at my first practice and I started doing training and just bits of everything. 2004, I downed tools in so far as being an accountant and had to go through a process of learning on the job to be a manager, learning on the job to be a salesperson, learning on the job how to do marketing to feed the salespeople, learning on the job how to build a team. And around 2013, I stepped away from the day-to-day workings of the business altogether. Um, Uh, Sorry,
1: sorry, Carl, can I just interject? I I think there's a bit that's been missed. So you joined DNT as an employee. Then when did you actually become kind of, you know, one of the owners? How was that route to kind of... Uh,
0: yeah so that was that that was in 2007
1: okay so we had
0: a found a founding partner who wanted to leave there was three of us uh three others of us at the time Mm -hmm. um we designed an exit route for him that took quite some time and there was actually a challenge in that as well which i'll share very openly um because of my age at that time bear in mind in 2007 i was only 26 Mm. and not many people get the opportunity to um, buy into a what was a traditional practice at that point. Um, so unfortunately it was done. So the deal was done in 2007, but I came on board as a partner the day after he came off as a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, there was, there was some politics around it. And I think that was 2010, that that switch over took place. Um 2007 as well was when we took on Zero because Iris, in their infinite wisdom, decided to pull out the online market. They felt there was no future in online bookkeeping. So we brought Xero over to the UK, helped adapt GST to V18, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I was going through the process of downing tools to becoming client uh, new prospect-facing only. And then from 2013 was when I had a true business development team and was able to step away from all of the day-to-day workings of the business and focus solely on really, um, I, I guess, building out the leadership side of a business so that that could be replicated by an executive board, which we've got now, um, but also refining the management process because we, we made the same mistakes most firms do of promoting accountants to managers because they've been sat there the longest. So we we had to re-engineer all of that. And also, of course, the um, continual innovation that we've needed to ultimately protect our marketplace.
1: Excellent. Okay. So that, that's very fascinating journey, Carl, and uh, amazing how you got to sort of partnership so quickly at the ripe old age of, uh, of 26. So that's a fantastic achievement. Um, we probably, uh, you said 2007. So I and I bought into a verb in 2008. So, you know, a, couple, a year or talk, talk to me about that journey from sort of 2007 to 2013, where you were in that partnership position and before you were able to step back what are the, the kind of things that you did? So, you know, everyone on here on this call wants to know the how, how did you actually start the process of building the accounting firm to run without you? So talk us through what the kind of the systems and the structure were like. And where did you start first? Did you start on the systems? Did you start on developing the people? You know, what did you do? So the sort of practical steps that you know, people sure. can hopefully take away and learn from?
0: Okay, so um, there, was, there was a range of things. And I think it's important to remember at that point, I was in a position where whilst I wasn't doing existing client work, I was still winning work. Yeah, And that I cannot understate the importance of winning work in order to be able to build a practice that means you can step back. Um, yeah, it's all well and good systemizing and um, doing all of that stuff. But if you haven't got the turnover, which delivers the gross profit, which delivers the net profit for you to be able to employ someone to replace yourself, then actually you can't uh, step back. So whilst that's the opposite of um, most business rules, which you know, the business rules are you work on your client fulfillment, then you work on your conversion, then you work on your generation. Actually, we was doing everything at once. Um, so it's myself and my business partner, Ben, and without realising we have between us the rocket fuel principle of the visionary and the integrator in that I had the idea of where we were going the path that we were heading down and he was very good at communicating that vision to the team and translating it and so on the actual steps and I guess the how-to behind it um so the first thing we we've always had as a golden rule is that we've always overstaffed our management team so we've always gone beyond where the business would reasonably justify it should be. So, for example, when we had about 1.2 million turnover, we had a team of four managers.
1: Okay. Now, and employees, how many people under those managers?
0: I've got, uh, I'm <laughs> going to guess a total of 30 of us at that point, as that's a guess. Okay. But that's, I I, I wouldn't know. Um, the challenge with that one point uh, with having one point two, is clearly your profit levels are much lower because you're paying decent people to uh, be following a process and so on. But we took the view that actually we're very similar to a warehouse and you wouldn't order stock if your warehouse isn't big enough. So if we were going out winning work, we had to make sure that we have the capacity to deal with it in terms of um, people and time and all of that stuff, but also that we have the capacity to run a business at that level as well. Uh, because we were hitting some um, quite big growth numbers and there was a very real risk of overtrading through that process. And not just over-trading from the accountancy perspective of um, your marketing's costing you too much and you, you, know, you, you might be um, profit rich, but cash poor and so on but actually over-trading from the commercial perspective that we could be running before we could walk. So we um, at first promoted accountants to become managers. That was a a huge mistake, quite bluntly, because they didn't necessarily have management skills. Some did, some didn't. Um, So there was a lot of natural um, selection along the way, and that team has changed considerably um, but also we learned in that process that the, the phrase manager in an accounting firm actually covers some quite contradictory roles. And one of them is the role of the internal process manager versus the role of the external relationship manager, um, where one of them, you really want bat in your client's corner and making sure that your clients loved and you, know, you got all the time in the world to serve them and all of that stuff. And then the internal process manager, who should be focusing on pounds, shillings and pence, should be focused on profitability, which is diametrically opposite to the relationship manager. So we found that we needed some separation there. And we found other areas as well, where we had to separate out the roles and really get clarity on um, you know, roles, responsibility, job descriptions and so on. And uh, I, I'm going to open up another thing, which I might be jumping about here, but I'm just saying it as it comes to mind. And. Um, the other thing that we really wished we'd have done back then but we did far too late was setting our vision values stakeholders and so on and it's the kind of stuff that i saw during um during my accountancy training as kind of just management nonsense to be honest i i got it but i didn't think you had to go through the process it was like well you know clearly you need to know where you're going but i didn't actually go through the process or engage the team in that process um, doing that as a formal exercise and engaging the team on setting the values and the realisation that the values of a team were slightly different to my personal values. Yeah, they weren't conflicting, but the priorities were different. Um, and yeah, all of that stuff really helped solidify the engagement around the management team.
1: Brilliant. So, so, it's, so a question I get asked a lot is, how do you know or when do you know when to start adding additional members to your team? So you mentioned that, you know, you were, you were clearly overstaffed because you knew you were in work and you wanted to have the team in place to be able to deliver on all the promises and all the new clients that you had coming in. But did you kind of have a ratio in mind Clearly, you're running a business and you wanted to generate profitability, but you know, you, you knew looking ahead that you had to invest in people. Was there any sort of multiples that you used in your head to know, okay, we've got 30 people at 1.2 uh we you know we're going to stay at 13 to hit 1.5 or we need to get another 10 people to make sure we get to 2 million what kind of you know things will go around your head to help you make those decisions
0: sure so um back in the early days we were using timesheets so that helped the decision in terms of one of the ways that you could get your turnover was to look at your capacity multiplied by your notional charge-out rates, which are a load of nonsense, but it gives you an idea of the people versus the turnover. You can honestly check that back against total fees, and you could see whether you're somewhere handy. Um, What we do now, we we focus far more on throughput. So we look at jobs in the pipeline when they're due to land, the, the capacity we've got from people to push them through the system. Um, but really there's, there's a number of measures that go into it from a technical perspective, from a technical staff member perspective. We also, um, in the business development team, we, um, we look not so much from a capacity perspective, but more of a skill set perspective. And we have a very broad, well, I say broad rule of thumb. It's probably more specific for many firms, but, um, for every 44p of marketing spend, we need to get a pound return. Uh, that's the ratio that we use, um. I know that that's much lower than most where most firms would target, but that's because of how embedded we are in our niche we've um we've built that luxury I guess um so we have to make sure that a salesperson can return that that return on investment um but also that they're filling in a skill set that's not there in the team already. So we started with jack of all trades in that world, and we've gone down to being more specialist. So, for example, specialist content creator, um, specialist copywriter, specialist salesperson for telephone sales, specialist salesperson for franchise or sales. Um, but in terms of rule of thumb ratios for uh, for the general team, now it, it's on it, it's on workflow, but it's also looking at the pressures that the team are under are we um, getting murmurs that they're about to be busy
1: mm. brilliant so i guess i mean it sounds as if you know so what's just uh, what, what's the turnover of dnt now at the moment roundabout
0: so good question with covid we've got no idea this year <laughs> um, but we're broadly around two and a half mil Okay. So so let's say
1: taking you back to your days when you were hovering around the, the one million pound level, what did your what did your structure look like? So you mentioned you've got a, a management team and then you've got, I guess, you know, the, the 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 team members who who are doing it. Did you have a certain ratio of managers to team members? And when did you start to what were the first roles that you created? Because now you've got you know specialists in marketing, et cetera. So it sounds like it's more of a you know a corporate organization. Mm-hmm. But when did you start to actually what roles did you create and when did you create them in your journey?
0: Okay, so very, very simply, we created a management tier. We had no um, strict lines of control. Um, yeah, we did we didn't look at each manager's span of control, we didn't look at pods or anything like that. Yeah, we just promoted four people, gave them an extra five grand each and hoped for the best. Um, I, I might as well be honest about it. And that was an unmitigated disaster. Yeah. Um, so we had myself and Ben. Um, so by that point, the third partner had um kind of gone his own way. He was still in the business, but not, if that makes sense. Um, myself and Ben, very broadly, Ben looking after the ops, me looking after a vision, the team of four managers who had had division of client, but not division of team members, and member the team members. Um that was as I say, a disaster because you had a lot of crossover. You had um, a lot of generalists looking after a lot of generalists and it didn't quite work where we've moved to now is um, we've looked at reinventing organizations, a fantastic book by Frederick Lulu. I don't know if you've come across that, but he puts forward the um, basically the pod management system. So we use a pod management system with pod leaders and so on. Um, but also from a bigger picture perspective, you touched on commercial and that's why I want to come back to that point. We've decided to make the business very commercial rather than an accounting practice. Mm. So we have the all of the roles, over CEO, the COO, et cetera, but we also have a CPO, the chief practice officer, mm. um, which is effectively the senior partner in most firms. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the challenge that I see most firms have is that they conflate the role of senior partner and CEO. And quite frankly, you don't want the senior partner being the CEO. Mm. Definitely. uh, From a commercial perspective, that just doesn't work.
1: Yeah. What is, um, someone is asking here, what is a, Carol is asking, what is a pod system? If you could just kindly explain that.
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, our interpretation of a pod system is actually a business that could run itself. Mm -hmm. So we have all of the disciplines within the business within one pod and they have team targets that then can be taken down to individual targets. So the pod is effectively its own practice um, where we're trying to move towards. um, But it is a continual process because we've got team members who've been there longer than me. So the change management is really quite tricky on this. Um, But the eventual goal is for the pod to determine what their own strategy is. Um, even so far as what their own values are and so on, um, as long as it's in line with the overall business direction, uh, they would set their own turnover targets, have their own PL, and and effectively run as a business within a business. So they would utilize shared facilities, um, but actually would run almost as a, as a micro accounting firm within a bigger accounting firm. Um, for book Reinventing Organizations, I highly recommend the picture version because I'm no good with words. Um, <laughs> But you know, I, I find that just seeing the picture of how it's structured is far better than reading 100 pages of words yeah. uh, because you can get it quite quickly. But it was trialled, I believe, in Sweden in their health service. And the health outcomes were far greater than the traditional way of working. So if it can work in a health system, it can definitely work within a business.
1: Mm, definitely. And typically, how many people do you have in your pods? And in terms of the metrics that they are charged with, you say they, you know, they have they're responsible for their own PNL, etc. Uh, or
0: are they given a directive from the
1: management team that you guys need to generate X amount of, of revenue and handle X? Absolutely,
0: amount? absolutely. So they they're given a directive of what they need to contribute towards the overall business. No. Um. But then it's down to them how they achieve it.
1: Okay. And typically, how many people in your in the pods? Six.
0: Six. Fantastic. Yeah.
1: Uh, and you and that is the in your view that's the the optimum number to have in a pod or would you go
0: more or less? Oh, we don't know because we've not tried yeah. anything else. However, um, six was based from a couple of angles. First one, the old management theory, which I don't know if it's true or not, that the ideal span of control for a manager is five people. So manager plus five seemed to make sense. Yeah. Um, but also it allowed us to have enough variety of roles within. So we could have a tax specialist in each pod. We could have an apprentice in each pod. We can have a customer service coordination in each pod and so on. Fantastic. Good stuff.
1: Charlie is saying, which book is Carl suggesting? That was Reinventing Organisations, wasn't it? By... Yes, it
0: was. Um, let me just turn. I've got it on my bookshelf so I can show the copy as well. He says. No, I haven't. I can't. Oh, here we are. So it's this book here. Fantastic book. Um, but don't go for this one because it's loads of words. There's an A4 picture version that's much better. It just doesn't fit on my bookshelf.
1: Brilliant, thank you. So, Carl, there's another question here which I was going to touch on as well about your client types. Now I know you know, like me, you're a fan of niche, niching your accounting practice. Uh, so, talk to me about when, whether DNT was already established as a niche provider. I think franchising is, is your niche. Isn't it? Was it already established as such, or did it evolve over time? And, you know, what is your advice for other firms who are not quite there with niching and and why they should consider it?
0: Sure. Okay. so uh, no, it wasn't already there. Um, But I'm going to answer first so that people don't switch off whilst I'm talking about how to do it. I'm going to answer the why you should do it first, if that's Okay. Okay. Um, And it's an absolute no brainer. You must do it. Ignore the. I'm going to use a very friendly term here uh, that might seem disparaging but the idiots who <laughs> say you shouldn't niche um, just to get airtime and contribute to a conversation because it makes no logical sense whatsoever not to niche. Um, look, any business has a definition of what, what their, who their customer is. Um, now, that definition might be wide, it might be narrow, but quite frankly, if, if you feel that you can sell anything to anyone – and you genuinely mean that. If you genuinely think that you can serve a taxi driver in the same way that you can serve Apple or Google as a client, then you're deluded because you, you just can't, and no business can. If you take, you know, let, let's say Debenhams, they have a certain demographic that they see as their customer. It might be a wide demographic, but they have a demographic. They have a product range. You wouldn't go into Debenhams to buy, I, I don't know, a hammer and some spanners. You'd go to B and Q so you you have every business has a definition of who their customer is what their product is that product market fit and it's just the conversation is more about how tight you define it um whether you go hyper defined like we did at first or whether you have a more general niche so yeah so first of all don't switch off at the word niche everyone's got a niche you you know deep down you've got a niche even though you might think that you're not a niche firm. Um, there is the fear of many firms that if they niche, they're going to have to turn away customers and so on. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Um, so the two niche markets that we've had, the first one was kind of there when I joined d but it wasn't identified as a niche. It wasn't big enough to take forwards as a niche at that point. Um, and that was the martial arts schools. And that is what I would call a micro niche. So you've got a niche market um, and in that world, that niche market could be education businesses. And then a micro niche is the next layer down where you really refine who it is that you serve. And for me, I'm a huge fan of micro niches. I know most firms aren't and this is where I agree that there's more of a debate to be had about whether, for example, you should focus on medical businesses or whether you should focus on vets who've got locum staff members. Um, I would be the one who would focus on vets with locum staff members, but many firms will just focus on medical because they feel they need a bigger market. Mm. Um, In our experience, certainly with martial arts, um, the total addressable market, we believe the contribution to GDP in that world was 25 mil. Um, We believe that the addressable market for us, so that is – the businesses that saw themselves as businesses rather than hobby clubs, and that had a turnover of over 50 grand, um, we believe that there was maximum 500 in the country. And the way that we saw it was that, um, you know, if we could, if we could get to 20% of them, that's a good slab of clients. Um, we actually got to 250 and we realized that our predictions on adjustable market and so on were totally wrong. And it was actually a smaller market than we expected but it gave us a portfolio or certainly it gave me a portfolio that justified my positioning to buy into business. Um, you know, I was, I, 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 had a bigger client portfolio than one of the partners that just exited. So it, you know, it, it put, it put me personally in a good position, but also from a business, we, we had a very profitable client base as well. So what we, if, What's the best way for me to answer this? Should I talk a bit about the commercials of the niche before how I did it? Or would you like the how I did it and then the commercials?
1: Yeah, go go for the how now first.
0: The how. Yeah. Okay. So what we did, we have this bunch of clients and I say it was a handful of them. And it was because one of the partners trained as a martial artist, knew somebody, helped him with his VAT. He told his mates. So a few people came to the firm. Um, and this is how most niches start. You know, um, I, I helped advise the wow company on how to get into their niche of creatives. And it was because they had five or 10 creative businesses. And I remember meeting Paul Bulpit over. I had a bacon roll. He's a veggie, so I can't remember what rubbish he was eating. And um, I said, why aren't you niching? Uh, you know, most firms have got five or 10 clients in in an industry, but the accountant enjoys working within. You know, They're people like them. They radiate the same energy and so on. Um, for me, with martial arts school owners, they were, and this sounds horrifically offensive to say this, but it, it's true. They were blokes who were my age to 10 years older. So I naturally resonated with them more than I would maybe a 70 year old chairman of a limited company who always has to wear a suit and tie. So I I had more rapport with them quite naturally. Um, I quite enjoyed the fact that they were into their personal development and i was too so there was a natural area of conversation outside of business um i found it quite cool what they were doing you know i I've, i'm not a martial artist but i found it really cool the uh you know the stuff they were doing and the the change that they could affecting kids most importantly so there was just a natural resonance between me and my clients um how we then so that was kind of how we identified the niche how we then expanded it um, we set up a niche website, martialartsaccounts.com. I doubt it's still going now. But we set up a niche website that was focused solely on the martial arts schools. We wrote in the trade journals. So I got to know the trade journals, wrote articles, um, got to know the key industry influencers. So that included the people who run the associations of martial arts school owners. That included the national governing bodies. That included the diet debit collection agencies. And it included the, um, the manufacturers and wholesalers of equipment. So got to know them, visited them, become friends with them, and got referrals that way. We'd also ask our clients for referrals. Um, The next thing, and I think this is an important point, there's a lot of talk about niching from a marketing perspective. And yes, you need to market your niche, but you also have to service your niche. There's no point having a niche if you can't deliver specifically for that niche. So we had to learn the workings of the business. So I just sat back and listened to a lot of school owners about, what were the key revenue drivers in their business? Um, you know, how many students could they train in a certain size location? So and I got to a point where when I was going to visit a school, I would be able to tell the demographics of the area just through driving through. And I would know whether they would work for a martial artist or not. I would know even simple things like where their dojo was in relation to a major A road. It sounds really simple when you say it, but you don't think of it as an accountant at first. Um what is far more useful for me to know is the fact that people who live on the other side of that a road, aren't going to go to that school. It just doesn't happen because mm. human behavior. You don't drive around a road, turn back on yourself to go somewhere. Um, you know, we learned the radius what students come from when they're in, we learned the number of students per square footage and all of this stuff. And it allowed us to have really intelligent conversations with our clients. So what I call true advisory, you know, their, their VAT and their tax and all of that stuff was irrelevant. Yeah. They actually, you know, the business owner didn't really care about it as long as they were um, forewarned and forearmed with what was coming. What they cared about was the fact that we could talk them through each year how to build their business, how to solidify their business. Um, what other school owners are doing that they're not, um, where they could potentially find um, better suppliers for their kit, not not just on price, but on Um, those things that you can't really quantify with a number, so quality of kit and all of that stuff. Um, It was more important for us to be able to talk to them about the latest um, dojo management theories. Yeah, that was the stuff that they wanted from us. Um, So that was the how. We got to know all of that stuff. Um, And then the second stage of it, so that that kind of gets you in the game. And most accountants in most niches, in honesty, only do 10% of that. They might write a couple of articles and do the marketing, but they don't truly embed themselves in the world of their client. Uh, in my experience, the next stage of that is to close the door behind you. So that opens the door for you to become a no brainer for any client. So you know, we were charging average fees of two and a half, three grand for these school owners and a good proportion of them are still clients of ours, even though we're not actively in that world. Um, we were charged two and a half, three grand when a local firm would charge them 500 quid. But, you know, the extra couple of grand's worth of business advice we were offering totally paid for itself several times over for them. Um, you know, the the tax and the filing of the accounts and the cash flows and all of that stuff and putting them on the online accounting, that was a commodity. But we bought some real specialism. Once you're at that stage, you then got to close the door. And that's... Um, So in the martial arts world, we did that through, I I became a um, founding director of the federated body for taekwondo, um, became a director of the national governing body and and raised the Olympic funding for taekwondo as well. Um, We we got involved in the standards agency, which is not for profit. You know, we did loads of things that basically put a load of barriers to entry for other accounting firms so that nobody could come in and be the next martial artist accountant. Yeah, And we did the same in franchising. We, you yeah, know, exactly the same in franchising. We worked out what we could offer. Um, there was also a bit of a technology play there as well. So we had to build our franchise dashboard and um, other tools that could go in. We um, ramped up, made a load of noise, and then we closed the door behind us.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, no, I'm with you there, Carl. In terms of you know niching, it's it's so powerful. And there are there are many reservations that accounting firm owners have that, you know, if I niche, then I'm going to close the door on so many opportunities. But actually, you'll open the door on many others. And chances yeah. are that those others will be a lot more profitable, profitable than the ones that you have. Because I mean, let's face it, you cannot, when an accounting firm owner says, Yeah, what well, so who do you serve? Well, I serve serve you know small business uh owners in in business in the uk there are five million businesses in the uk you cannot possibly serve all of them exactly you you have to kind of you know um really knuckle in and hone in on who it is that is your target audience completely then you'll have your ideal client and that means your marketing can be so much more laser focused and you started in the world before facebook now we have facebook ads and you know other methods of getting directly into the households, right in front of our target owners, to have to speak to them in their yeah, lingo, so, which is what you did, you know. Yeah. Just- so
0: let me let me support that with a couple of stats. So um, DNT is based in a town called Swindon. There's um, for the business size that we'd be looking for, which is roughly 250,000 turnover up to two million, I think. Um, the last time we did that database there was only a thousand we expanded the database um so we went down to vat registration and up there was only two thousand businesses there's 60 firms of accountants okay you don't need to be an accountant to realize that being a player of one in a market of 500 is far more advantageous or like we've got in franchising being one of three um, but being by far and away the leading firm in that world in a market of 40,000. Um, and that's where it, it just works um, because the, the other challenge is if you don't go down that route of niching, you you struggle to get referrals because whilst you, you might feel that you've got a great relationship with the local bank manager, they're having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with every firm close to you. That's the reality of it. And they might say they love you, but they're promiscuous. And we know that let's say the martial arts world if a martial arts school owner is speaking to another martial artist or one of the suppliers to the industry or their payment bureau or their association or their national governing body they're going to get referred to us it's that simple Mm. so that's why we've driven our cost of acquisition down so far because in our two areas we are the go-to's
1: Fantastic. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. It's you know even when you it just I mean you've got a very micro niche in, in martial arts schools, but clearly you know you've made a success of it uh, just in that. You know ours ours is property, and you know people know that we are uh, we are specialists in property, and that's where we get our referrals. You know you're able to. You're able to charge a lot more because people see you as the specialist. Just think of, you know a GP. versus the brain surgeon you know, mm. who earns more. Um, and, and just the mere fact uh, of putting yourself out there and saying that I am an accountant for X industry, automatically you are seen as the expert, and people know who your audience are, and you're much more likely to get highly qualified ideal client inquiries. Yeah, so so they, they feel like you get them. They, you know you're yeah. speaking their your lingo.
0: So let let me give you a perfect example. I mean, you touched on at the start that I do a lot in the small business world and I do, but that's not to to win every small business as a client. So if I talk you through our funnel from that perspective, so I've got my new book, Bossit, which is coming out in October. We've got the Facebook group, the Bossit Small Business Community and a few other very general um, small business, young enterprise, loads of small business activities. The Facebook group, is where we're directing people to at the moment and that's up to about two and a half thousand members we've got quite good engagement and that's only after a few weeks that so it's really taken off um but you know what we've got on the face of it we've got competitors in that group but also let let me tell you we don't want 99 percent of those members as clients of ours it's not just a case of they're not in our niche we don't want them Okay, other accountants can play in that group and can pick off ones in their niche um, because we then filter down. We've then got a second Facebook group, the, the Franchise Mastermind. So if anybody's thinking about franchising, they go into the Franchise Mastermind where then the members will talk about my book, for example, and they'll share content that I've done previously around franchising. Then from the Franchise Mastermind, we bring them down into our funnel. And the cha- I think the challenge that many firms have, even if they've superficially got a niche, is that they dive in for third base straight away. And actually, if you're going to get married to someone, and the average client life should be longer than the average marriage, <laughs> if you're going to get married to someone, you want to get to know them first. You want to make sure that it fits. And for us, that fit is them being in franchising.
1: Yeah, no, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a common challenge for many accountants who say, you know, we, we want to win new clients. How do we win new clients? How do we get more inquiries into our firm? Well, that's the place to start. You know, if you don't know who your target audience is, if you don't know who your ideal client is, then, you know, your marketing is just going to keep, you know, it's going to be like a little drizzle everywhere and no one's really going to get it. It needs to be laser focused and mm. the starting point is that ideal client. So, let, so um, let, me tell you,
0: let me tell you as well, the example of how closing the door can um, really protect your income going forwards as well. Um, Because I think that's an important part of the niching equation, but not many do. Um, Let's say there's a lot of talk about a marketing niche and focusing on the promotion side of it. But if you don't get the business of niching right behind the scenes, then you can, all you do is you open up the idea of a niche to your competitors. When you close the door on it, you get to a point where we've had KPMG, PwC, Tenon back when they were going, um, Deloitte's, they've all tried to enter franchising. And they've got a big carrot to enter franchising because they can do the um, head office audits as well. We have our clients, Stanley Black and Decker, um, who else have we got? We've got Anytime Fitness, um, Centrica. You know, There's some real big players there that the big four would want to be in for the audits. Now, PwC did their due diligence on it and decided not to go for it. Deloitte actually employed someone to do the due diligence on a whole new project through their Propel I uh, think decided not to do it KPMG had considered internally to acquire us decided not to Tried to compete and lost a seven figure sum in doing so Yeah, you know we, we've had people come and go and the reason is we just we made sure that we were so tight within the industry but no one could replace us it's that simple yeah. so it's not just about saying you do it it's about becoming tight in the industry finding a true value proposition that's over and above what any other accountant can offer and shutting the door behind you.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Carl. We're uh, approaching the end of our time here. We could talk for hours, I'm sure. Um, but unfortunately, uh, we're going to bring it to a close. So uh, a couple of final questions, here. if you could include the answer to those in your wrap up. Um, so if you leave the audience with the your top three priorities that an accounting firm owner should work on, to build a firm that can run without them and in that if you could just answer a couple of questions one from emily on for a sole practitioner with freelance bookkeepers who what role would be your first hire and carol is asking yeah carl if you were starting a practice from scratch today what would be your priorities so you know to get to where you are today. So three top priorities, but also answering who
0: you're first. Also answering those. Wow. That's going to be a tough one. So (laughs) let me, let me just start with Emily. um, Who would my first hire be? Um, If I was starting a practice today, I think I'd be questioning whether I need to hire, to be honest. Um, I would be looking at a blank canvas approach and do I go down the hiring route or in terms of a traditional accountancy hiring. So the traditional accountancy hiring path would be an assistant who can do the donkey work while you get on with seeing the clients. But I would actually, if I was in the position of having a blank canvas and deciding where to go with the business, I would actually be considering, well, do you know what? Do I outsource the lot? Um, Do I look at a, um, Do I look at offshore? Do I look at nearshore? Do I look at um, having a distributed network? I would be looking at all of the different options. And I'm not so sure that the answer that I can give you based on my experience is the right answer. Um, But for a traditional firm, and if I was starting 10, 20 years ago, it would have been to take on an assistant, then to take on another assistant, then an administrator and to scale up that way. Um, so the second question, sorry, is um, what would I do if I was starting to practice from scratch?
1: Sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. If I was starting to practice from scratch, I would avoid the temptation of working with the friends and family who say, oh, that's great. You're becoming an accountant. Can I work with you? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first thing that I would do. I would avoid doing that because it leads to discounting. It leads to emotional challenges and it sets your relationship with your clients off on the wrong footing because you're going to start straight away with Friday evening phone calls. So actually, what I would be doing is I would be following the process. It's a process I set out in my book for general small businesses. But it, as an accountant, you are a general small business. Dream, plan, do, review. So I would set out the dream really clearly. Where do I want my business to be? Um, What do I want it to look like? Um, Where would it be five, 10, 15 years time? Who will its customers be? Um, Which industries will it serve? What good will it do in the world? All of that stuff. Then bring it into a plan. So this is where you become a spreadsheet millionaire and then wake up and do it seriously. Um, But build, build it into an actionable plan and then go about building it as a arm's length business rather than as a service to friends and family to begin with. Because if you go about it intentionally as an arm's length business, you're far more likely to attract the customers that you're going to want in five years time. If you do it as a favor to friends and family, the challenge you've got is the most distance of them. Let's say the brother-in-law. Um, yeah, you're doing brother-in-law's accounts. And he said, well, look, I was paying someone 200 quid. And you said, well, I'll do it for 175 quid. Then he refers his mate and you've got you've got you're in a position where there's more month for money I think yeah I'll do it I'll do for 175 quid for you as well and then he recommends you to a few more mates down up and all of a sudden you've got a very unprofitable practice which can't be sold has got no clear USP so rather than just knuckling down and getting clients I would actually be very intentional on how you design your practice plan it and it's tougher and it takes longer to get your first client but with that intention, I can guarantee that that client will be more valuable. And what it will also do as well is it will set you up emotionally for only working with those clients that deserve you. I was going to give three top tips, wasn't I? Three yes, top that's tip. right. Yes. So three top three top tips on how to scale your firm so that it can effectively work without you. Mm-hmm. The first one, and by far the most important, is to get over yourself. I think that The challenge many firm owners have in delegating from what I've seen is that they believe their team can't do it or they believe they can't hand on the relationships or that their clients need them and their clients will leave if it's not them. And all of these limiting factors in your own mind. And the reality is you have to have a level of trust in your team. You employed them for a reason. And that reason is that they're better than you. And not necessarily from a technical perspective, they're better than you because they can win work, they can keep work, so on. So that's the first thing is to get over yourself and to allow your team to do what you've employed them to do. The second thing is if you're looking to get out of a business, you need the team firing in the same direction as you. And it's really challenging to keep a team on the same direction without clarity of vision and values, without clarity on who the stakeholders are, and also without that um, joint engaged voice. So make sure that when you recruit people, you recruit slowly rather than the first person that comes along. Make sure that you hire on who they are. The three questions that I always ask is, um, first of all, will they do the job? secondly will they fit into the team and only then do i look at skills because the skills are absolutely irrelevant skills can be taught personality can't be taught and one of the traps we fall into as employers in general is that we hire quickly and then we fire very slowly and actually most firms or most businesses hire on skills but fire on attitude so we need to make sure we flip that equation around to get the right people in keep a very firm eye on your culture and your staff engagement. We use external staff engagement surveys to make sure that engagement levels are spot on. Uh, you want to make sure that it, in our world, that you're not just top quartile, you're top 10%. If you're not, then it's probably not at a point to step away and let it run itself. Um, so yeah, you really need to work on the people and embracing that side of things. And then the third thing that you need to do, so I've said you need to get over yourself. I've said that you need to um, really focus on the culture. The third thing that you need to do is you need to accept that you won't get it right first time, second time, third time. There's still occasions in DNT where I need to dive back in. So thankfully there's only been one since I stepped away. So I stepped away Feb 2019. And the occasion where I stepped back in was COVID. It was my natural um, adrenaline rush. I felt, you know what, I need to dive in. I need to check what's happening didn't spend too long, but I probably spent a couple of days on the business, which was a couple of days more than my executive board would have wanted me to. So you need to be prepared to step back in, but more importantly, prepared to bite your tongue. And I'm having to undo that process and step away gracefully, which maintains my ego, which is significant, but Hmm. also allows the board to get on with what they're tasked to do. Because you know, it comes back to that first point of getting over yourself. You need to you you really need to set the vision, but let your team get on with it. And possibly that is the toughest thing is when you see stuff happening or questions being asked, which isn't in the way that you would do it. Unless it's a million pound issue, don't get involved. If it's a 1 million pound issue, then dive in and fix it. But if not, the damage to your team is far greater if you step in. So uh, an example of this is, let's say that you disagree with the way they've dealt with a client. You know, let, let's say it's a credit note for two and a half grand, for example. Now, two and a half grand is two and a half grand. Yeah, That's a lot of money. That's a holiday. So two and a half grand is a lot of money. And that comes directly out of my pocket. However, the cost of undoing me overriding or undermining my board's decision, their management team's decision, the cost of me diving in the street, speaking directly to a team member rather than following the same channels is far greater than two and a half grand. So you've unfortunately got a choice between bad and worse. And it's best, unless it's a million pound issue, to step away, put your fingers in your ear and hope for the best.
1: Fantastic. Carl, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Some great nuggets of wisdom there from Carl on how to build your accounting firm so it can run without you. I really appreciate you taking the time today, Carl, coming on here. Thank you so much for the invite. Fantastic. Thank you very much, everyone, for watching. Until the next time, thanks, guys. Have a great rest of the week and we'll catch up soon. Thanks again, Carl, and uh, I'll catch up with you soon. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening.